You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Good morning, everybody. Welcome again. A question for you. How many of you are super annoyed by surveys? Okay, lots of you. All right. I do have one more announcement. <laughs> On the bottom of your bulletin is, I'm going to ask you, this is my one time to pitch this, will you help me out? Will you help me out by doing a survey for us? So, about three years ago, many of you participated in a survey called Reveal. And I can't tell you how helpful that was for us to self-assess as a church and to plan ahead for the future. Now, they recommend, the developers of this survey, that you take it again in about three years. One, so you, you can again assess and measure your progress and again do some future planning. We are right now in a place where we are in a, we've ended a season of a strategic plan and we are in the process of evaluating and wanting to launch our next three to five year goals and emphasis. And having this data and feedback would be super helpful for us as pastors and as leaders. So what I'm going to ask you to do is you'll get an email next Sunday. And it will have a link to where that survey is. The survey takes about 15 to 20 minutes to fulfill or to complete. So it's not too long. I, I want to ask every one of you to do it. And even if you are relatively new, even if you are not yet a Christian, we would ask you, we would love your feedback, and your feedback would be tremendously helpful to us in, 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 these, uh, in our goals and in helping us, again, evaluate where we are as a church body. If you have never given us your email address or if you are not on our uh, subscription list, you won't get that email. So I'd ask you today, please consider putting that email on the Connect card so you can get that, uh, that link. Uh, it'll also actually be on our website. And if in three or four weeks, if you don't like being on our email list, if you want to stay below the radar, you can simply unsubscribe and we'll take you off. So, Okay? So, again, that's my one pitch. It'll be about a three-week window where you can take the survey. That'll all, all the details will be in there. But we hope you can help us help us with that so all right let's turn to let's turn to Luke so a beating heart a beating physical heart supplies everything that we need to every part of our body a spiritual heart does the same thing for us a strong spiritual heart provides nourishment everywhere we need it we feel fully alive as our mission statement says. We are thinking, feeling, creating, loving whole beings. The writer of Proverbs said it this way, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. In our next section from Luke's Gospel, Jesus warns of the things that can dull our hearts and can shrink our hearts hearts. Thus the title this morning, What Makes the Heart Dull and What Can We Do About It? And I'm going to try to show you this morning 
that what makes our hearts dull is the inability to weep. All right? Just stand up, and I'm going to begin reading here in our passage for today, beginning at verse 12 in Luke 6. If you want to follow along in the Bible in front of you, it's page 862. Verse 12. In this, these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for their fathers did the same to the false prophets. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So, if this passage sounds familiar to you, it's because we spoke on it recently. It's the same material as in Matthew's Gospel, the uh, famous uh, passage there called the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of chapter 6 in Luke continues, uh, mirrors, continues to mirror what's in Matthew's gospel. Beginning in verse 27, Jesus spoke of love for your enemies. In verse 37, he decries judgmentalism. Beginning in verse 43, using the word picture of of a tree, he describes the connection between our heart and our behaviors. And then concluding in verse 46, he urges us to build a strong foundation based on his words, practicing his words. Now all that we have taught on and is available to you in our sermon archives on our website. I encourage you to check it out. But there is one outstanding difference in Luke's version. And it is the inclusion 
of those four woes in verses 24, 25, and 26. What does woe mean? For you John Wayne Western movie fans, this is not how to stop your horse. That is spelled, I think, W-H-O-A. Woe speaks of impending doom. Yet the word is more complex than simply saying, watch out. I like how one commentator captured it. Woe is not so much a threat as much as it is an expression of regret and compassion. One version of the Bible translates it as, how terrible. Now you might be saying to yourself, when Jesus speaks like this, he sounds like an Old Testament prophet, like Ezekiel or Isaiah thundering out warnings. And if you're thinking that, you are exactly right. Jesus did sometimes speak in the vein of a prophet. His ministry included the prophetic. And just like the prophets, Jesus uses a form of poetry to make his point and to make it easier to remember. Now, true confessions here. How many of you hated poetry in your high school English class? Okay, I see lots of hands up, mostly guys, some, some girls, some women. It was mandatory, right? There was no getting out of it. You thought, this makes no sense. It's hard to read. It's unhinged from the real world. Many think of poetry as soft and flowery. Flowery, it's not a word. Flowery. And overly feminine. I know, I know, okay. Just stay with me, all right? Stay with me if you would. Poetry, or what I should say is some of the boxes that you have placed or that others place poetry in, some of those boxes don't tell the whole story. Poetry can be fierce. Poetry can be masculine. Poetry can create revolutions. Poetry can light up the world with fire. Not all poetry is myth or fantasy. Poetry can speak truth, but it does not describe truth like a news anchor reading off a page. Poetry uses story and metaphor. In poetry, the speaker uses intentionally raw, shocking, or evocative language. Why? Because it's meant to jolt the audience out of a mental or behavioral rut. This fits the prophets. And it fits Jesus. Because he was not content to drone on and on in lecture form. He did not count it as a success to merely pass on information. The goal of poetry is heart change. The goal is to engage the whole person, including the emotional self of the listener. You might say that poetry creates a live currency between both sides of the brain. 
Here's an interesting image of a brain. Left side, right side. How many of you are left-sided? Okay, you believe in order, math, and the rational. How many of you are right-sided? You believe in art, music, emotion, colors, creativity. Poetry helps create a currency between these two. Actually, the subtitle, and this is very interesting, the person who designed this said, I met Jesus on the right side. Interesting. I hadn't expected to find that. Poetry creates a current between left side and the right side. Often, poetry uses symbolic language with irony. It uses irony in order to get you to think more deeply. For all of you that said, I don't know what poetry meant or means in high school. Often the meaning in poetry is not readily apparent. <laughs> Why is that? Not to frustrate you. The reason is to invite the listener to do some work on their own. That's why you didn't like it. <laughs> because you wanted the teacher to passively feed you. Poetry means you've got to do some of the thinking work on your own. But that's what makes it so exciting. That's how you own it more. Because there's a self-discovery process. In this form of poetry, which is called antithetical parallelism, you don't need to remember that fancy term. Jesus sets contrasting statements right alongside of each other to demonstrate starkly different approaches to life. Now, why did I go into all this? Because we have a few high school English teachers here, and they paid me to do it. I say all this so we can make sense of what Jesus is saying because he's using a literary device to make his point. You may have read these verses many times and not known what to do with them, and so you pass right over them. Look at verse 21 and 25 together. I'm going to focus now the rest of the morning on this content of this particular parallelism. Verse 21, Jesus says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now all kinds of questions pop up. What could this possibly mean? How could weeping produce blessedness or happiness? How could I both be happy and weeping? Is Jesus saying that there is crying in baseball? <laughs> is he saying that crying isn't a sign of weakness? Is he saying that big boys do cry? Is that what he means? Or maybe you say, I'm not an emotional person. I don't cry. I can't remember the last time I cried. So what do I do with this Scripture? Now to clarify this, we must understand what Jesus means by laughing and weeping as they're used poetically in these contexts. 
This is crucial for us to understand Jesus' meaning. On the face of it, some of you might say this morning, this is exactly why I have not become a Christian. No laughing. God is like some grumpy old man, always against anybody trying to have a little fun or a good time. Well, let me just say this. To conclude that laughing is wrong or sinful, well, we just can't draw that conclusion. Over and over again, Jesus talks about giving us his joy and sharing his joy with us. And it's not just a little bit. It is a full measure. It is an abundant joy. And it is impossible to envision a life of joy without laughter. Right? I mean, this little guy is just full of joy, isn't he? Right? Can you imagine a life of joy without laughter? Of course not. Of course that's not Jesus' meaning. Years ago, many years ago, we used to have our pastor's meetings in our homes. And our kids, my kids, when it was at my house, my kids were younger and they remained on the main floor while the pastors trudged down to the basement to do their godly work. And we did have a lot of serious conversations. But I'm telling you the honest truth, we laughed a lot. And I mean a lot. It's the only thing that kept us sane. But we laughed so much so that my boys could identify and imitate the laughter of each pastor. One of us would break out in laughter, and they'd be upstairs trying to hear the TV over the laughter and say, I think it's Pastor Bob. Or I think it's Pastor Mike laughing. Here's how he laughs. Those are good times. And if I've still not convinced you that Jesus is not condemning laughter, look back at verse 25. What is the promise for those who weep now? They will laugh. It's the promise of a reward, is laughter. So what is the laughter that Jesus is condemning then? Well, again, look back at this text. Look back at the text and look alongside of the other pictures that Jesus uses in contrast to describe these two different lives. Look at the words that he uses. Jesus condemns being rich. Jesus condemns being full. Jesus condemns when everyone speaks well of you. A picture here begins to emerge, doesn't it? This is a lifestyle where the primary goal is comfort and ease. To surround my life with things, with comforts, to have all my appetites filled, to fit in so well that no one speaks evil of me. Laughter here is set in the context as a symbol of self-indulgence. It infers to a carelessness regarding the needs of others. Jesus is condemning the apathetic life, a life of complacency, not doing good when we have the power to do something. Now, our first question this morning was, what 
dulls the heart. And this is your answer. An abundance of wealth and comfort and entertainment can cause a slow leak to drip from your heart, stealing it of its power to love and to create and to feel and to do good. Lulling you into an apathetic, senseless, complacent life. Jesus is warning us of this. Now, are any of these things inherently wrong or sinful? Not necessarily. But Jesus is giving a warning relevant to any American because we live in one of the wealthiest nations of the world. We are surrounded by historically unprecedented comforts and mind-numbing entertainment. And as believers, we are not immune to our hearts being made dull and unresponsive. Jesus is speaking in the vein of the Old Testament prophets. Now, to dig a little deeper into this, let's look at one of those prophets. Go back to page 768 which was my old phone exchange growing up. Remember that, 768-3836. Page 768, and I'm going to set up the situation here and then link it to Jesus. Amos chapter 6. Amos lived about 750 years before Christ. And in these days, the northern and southern kingdom of Israel were living in new glory days. A time of incredible wealth, a stable government. Things had not been this good since the days of Solomon. They had no fear of their enemy, the Assyrians. The Assyrians seemed to be all bottled up. And so the Israelites interpreted, they understood that their unfounded wealth they understood it to be a sure sign of the blessing of God. They believed that the day of the Lord was imminent. And the day of the Lord would be the day when God defeats all their enemies and they would rule the world. But you know what? They were dead wrong. The wealth was not a blessing from God. Much of their wealth was actually amassed at the expense of the poor. And Amos' unenviable mission was to tell them they had got it all wrong. They were in reality under God's judgment because they had broken the covenant with God. Their worship was superficial. Their religion was no more than magical manipulation of God. I like that phrase. I got it out of the ESV study Bible. The study Bible continues to say, what Israel saw as the coming golden age was really the last flush of a terminal illness. Israel was not going to become ruler of the world. Within a few short years, they would not even exist as a nation. Just as Amos amazingly predicted, the Assyrians were not in decline, but only catching their breath before exploding into their final century of greatness. The day of the Lord was not going to be a day of light, but a day, a terrible day of darkness. Let's look at what Amos says. Look at verse 1, again in chapter 6. Notice the first word. 
woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of nations to whom the house of Israel comes, the leaders. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom Israel, and it was built into a hill with steep sides protected by thick walls seemingly impregnable creating a false sense of security. Next, he tells them to visit their neighbors, their pagan neighbors. These cities had once been equally fortified, yet they had all been destroyed. God is saying so much, why should I save you if I did not save them? Why would I save you for your perceived goodness? Verse 2, pass over to Calne and see. And from there, go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. What they believed is that the day of disaster, they assumed would never come to them. And at the same time, they were guilty of doing violence and injustice to the poor in their own land. That's what it means. They brought near the seat of violence. Moving from false security, the prophet now takes aim at the things that have dulled their heart. Verse 4, again, look at the word, woe to those who lie in beds of ivory, a luxury back then as it still is today and stretch themselves out on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the midst of the stall. The rich could eat the tender meat, not the tougher meat of beef and mutton, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. David may be mentioned here for the purposes of irony, because they lacked his passion. But what he's saying here in verse 5 is there is a kind of carelessness that has grabbed hold of them. They are content simply to strum away their lives. Verse 6, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. In other words, there is no restraint to their greed. There is great care for the needs of their own body while the more basic needs of others was being ignored. But now look at the last verse in verse 7. After saying all these things here, this verse really captures the capstone of it. And he says, you've done all these things in verse 7, but you are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph is another term for representing the nation. All of this luxury, carefree, carelessness, self-indulgence, but there are no tears. There's no grief. There is no grieving over the injustice in the courts. There's no anguish over the oppression of the poor. There's no heartache over the idolatry and the loss of their spiritual center. There is no sadness over the decomposing state of their worship. No sorrow over their spiritual pride. So Amos predicts in verse 7, therefore they shall now now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry 
of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The they is the cream of Israelite society. And they were the first to be taken into exile. Amos is condemning the complacency, hearts so filled with self that they no longer grieve over their spiritual sin. Their hearts were so dull, they could no longer be moved by the suffering of others. They thought they were entitled to the blessing of God when the judgment of God was just around the corner. And you see here is the direct connection to what Jesus says 700 years later. You see, the people in His day also thought a new era was about to dawn. And they would be blessed because they were the people of God. They would rule the world. And yet the cream of His day, the ones that He confronted, they were rich, their appetites were filled, and they were surrounded by every comfort, Many had compromised with the Romans in order to gain positions of power and wealth. Yet, in just a few short years, right around the corner, in 70 A.D., another terrible day of the Lord was about to hit them like a flood. The Romans would invade Jerusalem. They would strike a tremendous blow. They would leave terrible carnage, and they would destroy their glorious temple. If you were to think about that in connection to the United States, it would be like someone destroying our White House. The soul, the fabric, the heart of the nation. Jesus, a great prophet as well, predicted that day in what is called the Olivet Discourse. And we'll get to that later in Luke chapter 21. So when Jesus says, in light of this Old Testament context and the prophetic understanding and the use of poetry that Jesus is implementing, when Jesus says, blessed are those who weep, what is he saying? I have characterized what I think the laughter is. Now here's what I think he says when he's talking about weeping. I believe weeping is a symbol of a sensitive and tender approach to life that is broken over my own sin and is moved to action by the suffering, pain, and spiritual lostness of others. This is what I think Jesus has in mind when he says, blessed are those who weep. The spiritually sensitive, the spiritually tender approach to life, cognizant of my own sin, and grieved over it, and grieved over the impact of sin on people that I love, and on my community, and on my culture. I do not believe Jesus means weeping in a literal sense, though it certainly often involves that. Weeping is a symbol showing my heart is in tune with what is real. It weeps, it's sad over what sin has done to me, done to my relationships, and what is done with others. Weeping is a symbol showing my heart is sensitive, that is connected to God, and is connected to the needs of those around me. It's not a heart calloused or dulled. 
I think this is what Jesus is talking about. And so if this is the meaning of Jesus' words, and we know what shrinks the heart, what dulls the heart, well then, the last thing we have to answer this morning is, what is it that enlivens and enlarges my heart? You know, in the medical world, to have an enlarged heart is not a good thing, right? But in the spiritual world, it's a great thing. How do we enlarge our hearts? Well, again, let's see what the text says. Look at the other things Jesus honors besides those who weep. Look at the other things he honors here in these blessings and woes. He honors the poor. He honors the hungry. He honors those who are excluded. Now, does he mean literally this? Is this meant in an economic way? Well, I think certainly it literally includes the poor and the hungry and the excluded in one dimension. And that is that history has shown that the poor, hungry, and excluded are more open to accepting spiritual truth. Because every other sense of comfort and security has been stripped away from them. And we certainly can see that throughout the history of the church. Yet, it's also true at the same time, there are many poor people who want nothing to do with God. There are many hungry and excluded who are embittered at and reject God wholesale. So it cannot be defined only with an economic filter. I would argue again that this is symbolic. It is poetic language. It's, made, it's meant to paint a picture of the life that Jesus honors. The picture speaks first. This picture of those who are spiritually aware, the poor, of their own condition. They have nothing good within themselves to offer God. And they come to that conclusion. There is nothing good within them by which they can justify themselves before God. They are spiritually bankrupt. They are desperate. And they are willing to take the truth no matter where it leads them, even if it means losing friends. They have wept over their own sin. They have wept over how their sin has impacted the lives of others. They've come in touch. They've come in connection with that. There's a recognition of that. There's honesty about my own weaknesses. And when there is that honesty and that self-understanding and recognition, and sometimes, by the way, you'll, you'll see this through the courses of life. When I became a father, I saw my own sin or the sins done to me in a completely different light. This has happened throughout my life. I'll see life from like a different perspective and I'll recognize how my sin was more horrible than I ever could have imagined. Or the things that were done to me, how it had years of impact on my life. Sometimes life itself will unfold for us. The impact of sin. Those are moments where the Spirit of God and the grace of God is trying to connect our heart and your heart to what is real and to what is true and to stop living an illusion. But you see, it is sometimes the wealth and the affluence and the entertainment of this world that never allows us to get there. And so there are no tears. There is no weeping. 
over the brokenness. When the love of God pours into our lives in these moments of recognition, our blindness is healed. And it can really be with a sudden burst of light. We see the shallowness of having things. And we suddenly see the souls of others. So my urging to you is to stay open to God who reveals at moments the nature and pattern of sin in our lives. Let godly sorrow do its work. Sometimes as believers, we are so quick to claim our forgiveness that we do not let godly sorrow really do its redemptive work in our lives. But in the end... Don't stay there. Remember that you are no longer condemned. And so marvel afresh at His mercy and grace. While the consumeristic and competitive spirit can dull our hearts, the grace we receive from God will enliven and enlarge it. And this is what Jesus means by weeping whether they're literal tears or not. And weeping in this vein, when we weep this way, it always leads to action. Always. When my heart is moved emotionally and I act. If it's only tears, then it's only emotionalism. (laughs) It's only sentimentalism. It's not the weeping that God is describing here. In this kind of weeping, I weep over the condition and the eternal destiny of lost people. Therefore, I find creative ways to share my faith. I weep over injustice and violence and the loss of innocent life. And therefore, as I can, I work for biblical justice. I weep over the condition of the refugee in my country, and therefore I create ways to move towards them. I weep over the spiritual immaturity of the church, and therefore on God's calling I pursue training. I weep over those without basic needs like food and clothing, and therefore I roll up my sleeves and get to work. I weep over the sick, so I give myself to ministries of healing. I weep over the needs of children, and so I get involved and I teach and I volunteer. When is the last time you wept? When is the last time you wept? Can any one of us do all these things? Of course not. But can I say something? One of the ways for you to discern what God wants you to do What your assignment is, is what makes you weep. What causes you to weep? And that might be a clue as to what God's assignment is for you. None of us can do all these things, right? But all of us can do something. And one of the ways you might be able to discern that is to ask yourself, what makes me weep? That indeed may be God's assignment for you. I love this quote. I don't know who said it, but it really captures what I want to say this morning. Maturity is pressing towards the mark. 
This is maturity. You think this morning, as I, and, and I, I think the same thing, I'm giving you this law, I'm setting forth the way life ought to be, the way life should be, the way we should be. But are, do any of us meet it? Do any of us fulfill it? Do I meet it? Do I fulfill it? No. If you're feeling convicted from shallowness or from complacency or from apathy, join the crowd. None of us fulfill this. But what does maturity mean? Maturity means we keep pressing. We press toward the mark. Immaturity is complacency and self-satisfaction. When you become so self-satisfied that you stop moving, acting, and weeping, that's when to be concerned. The Spirit of God, the power of God, wants to help us weep so that we act. So stay on the path of maturity. Press into God. Tell the truth about yourself. Weep over your own brokenness. Let God bring you to your knees before Him through difficulties and setbacks, pain that you experience. Let God take you to your knees. And in the end, let's go back to that verse. Blessed are those who weep, for they shall laugh. Right? If you keep pressing towards the mark, then you will be honored by Jesus along with others whose glory in this life was not revealed, it was hidden. Indeed, to others it might even appear that your life was wasted or lost but you will be counted amongst those who in the age to come will inherit the earth. <laughs> You'll inherit the earth. You will laugh the laugh of inexpressible, eternal, unending joy in the presence of God. Amen? That's why we press towards maturity. That's why we let the Spirit of God come after us. That's why we once again say, yeah, God, forgive me. I bring to you my complacency. I bring to you my shallowness. I bring to you my callous heart. Can you forgive me and be merciful to me one more time? And God shouts from the heavens, yes, I can. It's a beautiful thing. He allows us to start over again. You know, one of the ways that we press towards maturity is by eating eating a meal with Christ at His table. The bread representing His body and the juice representing His blood. The bread, the, the body, and the blood of Christ. What we take here this morning is a sign. It is a sign of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will be consummated and which will happen when Christ returns and when all the poor hungry weeping and excluded will gather around his table and i promise you there will be lots of laughter there there'll be lots of laughter gather around his table and so this morning we're going to take the elements we're going to remember jesus who made all this possible
In a moment, the ushers will release you and allow you to come forward. Go ahead and take the bread and take the juice. Take it back to your seat. You can take it during any time during these next several songs. But I just would encourage you, you come forward. As you come forward, bring your complacency. Bring your apathy. Join me. Bring your shallowness. Bring your callous heart. And rest again and start again in the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Let the brokenness come over you. And let it come over you in such a way that God calls you to act and to move into this suffering world with the hands and the voice and the feet of Christ. Let me give thanks for the bread and the juice. Father, thank you. Your words are amazing, expansive, beautiful, beyond us. Father, we all tremble at your words. And yet you said that because of forgiveness, we can serve you and love you and be with you. And this morning we want to celebrate what you've done in our lives as we bring our broken selves to you. And remember that you paid the price. All of our complacency, all of our shallowness, all of our apathy was nailed to the cross and has died with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us now, when we walk out of this room, to walk in the power of our new creation, to be the new creation that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name.